Well, Happy New Year to you all. It's good to see you here. If I didn't see you here on uh, New Year's Eve, great to see you back um, on the first Sunday in the first teaching service of 2015. Before we get into that, I just want to mention something that may be of interest to some of you. Um, this week, actually on Wednesday, a number of the KT ministers are going up to Birmingham to join with uh, many of the other Elim ministers of our church's Elim denomination in Great Britain to celebrate 100 years of the Elim Pentecostal movement. We're 100 years old next week, so that's quite interesting, isn't it? And there's going to be various things happening over the year, but one of the things that we got, which we have just sort of got, came over just before Christmas, was this special centenary uh, book of Elim's 100 years. And it's um, done to a very high quality, as you can see, glossy with photos and it tells the history of our movement. There's a whole section there as well on Kensington Temple. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to have if you're interested in our history. And um, we've got them at the special price of £14.99. Uh, they're going to go up later in the year. But if you're interested, you want to have a look at that, uh, then uh, you can go to our book table outside and you can be able to have a look at it there. Well, I thought we would start the year by looking at a topic this month on what is revival and why do we need it. And I think it's important to visit this subject of revival again and again because it's something that is a very important ingredient to our Christian lives. I'll explain what it's like for those that go to extreme in looking at revival, but also those that go to extreme in forgetting about revival. So I want to talk a little bit about revival. And when we're looking at this mini-series this month, we'll be looking at different aspects of revival. Uh, we'll be looking at personal revival. In other words, how you can experience revival personally in your own heart. But also we'll be looking at how History has seen revival, how revival manifests throughout church history, examples of revivals, and how when a revived group of Christians uh, really get going, how it affects society. And I just thought I'd mention a couple of books that if you're interested in this theme or anything that I speak about in the next couple of weeks, and you want to pursue it a little bit deeper, we've got some Two books available for you, and they're, they're a very good price because they were written about 13 years ago, one by Colin and one by myself. And Colin's book is Hearts on Fire, Walking in Personal Revival. And many of these are sermons that he wrote during uh, quite a strong move of the Holy Spirit in Kensington Temple at that time. And these came out of these, we were meeting on a nightly basis, and many of these sermons on personal revival. And so these are from Colin, and the book is only three pounds. And then the other book is a book that I've written, and in fact what was going to happen is these two books, Colin and myself, we, they were going to be one book, and I would look at the history of revival, and he would give sermons on personal revival, and then it would come together, but the books both got too big. And so this is called Land of Hope and Glory, and what I've done is I've taken different chapters, and each chapter is a different revival that took place in the course of British history. 
there's Scottish revivals, English revivals, Welsh revivals, Irish revivals, right from the early Middle Ages, uh, right through to last century. And each chapter just gives you a taste of what happened there. And so um, that also is three pounds. So with these two books, you get the sort of two elements, personal revival. What does that mean for you, you personally? But also the history revival, how that revival, when revival hits a church or a group of Christians, how that can radically affect society. But today is a little bit more of an introduction, and I don't mind bringing an introduction to the topic of revival because there's so much confusion about it. So many people have different opinions on what revival is, uh, what revival should look like, how revival comes, and it's actually quite a confusing subject, I find, amongst many believers today. And so I want to just build a little bit of a background because where is revival, for example, in the Bible? I might have written a book, Land of Hope and Glory, on British revival through the ages, but but is there a revival concept that's actually in the Bible? Well, I'd like to start in the Old Testament. And if we go to Psalm 85 and verse 6 together... Well, we can read from verse 4 for the context. Psalm 85, verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put your indignation towards us away. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So in these verses, we see a situation where restoration is needed. In some way, shape, or form, God is not as actively involved in his people as he has been in the past. In fact, in this particular passage, there is a sense of, 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 of judgment or wrath. Restore us, O Lord. The sense that there needs to be a restoration of something. That people aren't exactly where they should be. That things aren't right with the people of God. They're not at the right place where, where, it, where it would be acceptable. And because of this, there's a sense in this psalmist that God We need you. We need you to come and do something. Something's not right. We need a work of restoration to get back to a place that we've fallen from. There's a sense not of your blessing, Lord, but of your anger or your judgment. In other words, they're asking for blessing, for favor. And then, will you prolong your anger in generations? Then it says, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice Show us your steadfast love and grant us salvation. This passage is calling on God to come and visit in grace and mercy his people and to do an act of restoration in their lives. The phrase, will you not revive us again? Now, this is where we get the word revival. 
Now, this word revive in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the, the root word comes from the word to live, originally conveying the idea of breath or breathing. You know, you say, is the person alive? I don't know, let me check if they're breathing. And so the, the Hebrew word here for living or to be alive is linked to the very word of breathing. And so the picture here is that the people are impotent and powerless, that they have fallen from a, a, a place where, where, where they know their need of restoration, that God is withdrawing or not moving as powerfully in their lives as he has done in former generations, and the idea for fresh breath, for a revival to take place. And of course, this idea of revival goes well with the word of, of restoring, restoring themselves. Restore us again, O God, revive us. Because you can't revive something that didn't have life to begin with. So the idea of restoration, you can't restore something uh, that never had. You, there had to be something there in the beginning to do a work of restoration. There had to be life there somewhere in the beginning for there to be a work of reviving. When the paramedics come to a situation and somebody looks like their heart has stopped, then they know that they have to do a quick work of reviving, to revive that person through their medical methods. So when we think of revival and the word revival coming from the Old Testament, think of breath. A great picture can be found, and you might want to turn to it, in Ezekiel chapter 37, a very well-known passage and also carrying on this theme of revival, the idea of God breathing into a situation of God restoring. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm just going to read on it and think about this word revival. The hand was the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to them, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So when we speak about... Um, this, this situation here, we find again a picture of revival where it says, can these bones live? It's that word, can these bones live? Can these bones be revived? They were at once alive, now they're dead. Can they be revived? And the picture is, is that the breath of God will come upon these bones. I will cause breath. Now the Hebrew word for breath is uh, the same as the Hebrew word for spirit, which is the same as the Hebrew word for ruach, uh, sorry, for, for wind, which is ruach. So there's a speaking here of breath, a speaking here of spirit, life, 
are speaking here of the wind coming upon and causing these bones to be revived, to, for life to come back on them, the idea of breathing. So when we start, speak about revival, we're speaking about a fresh breath of God or breathing in the breath of God into our lives. And that reminds us a little bit, doesn't it, of how Adam was created. How God took the clay. I know it wasn't a work of revival because the clay was dead, but it was a work of creation. And God breathed into the nostrils of that clay and it became a living soul. Well, these were living souls, these bones, but they were dry, parched, dead. And who are these people? Well, the Lord says, he says that these people are the house of Israel. He's speaking about the house of Israel there in verse 11. Son of man, these bones are are the whole house of Israel. And so what God is saying is, here is, this is Israel. These are people. The dry bones are figurative and symbolic of a group of living people. It's the house of Israel at that time. They're walking around. They're living on earth. But to God, they are dry bones. And that's how he views them spiritually. And so this is speaking about a spiritual revival. If we go back to the Psalms, Psalm 80, to carry on this theme. We could go verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, this stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong yourself. They have burnt it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. A picture again of a situation where things have broken down and a call on the Lord. Some translations don't say restore us, but revive us, O Lord of hosts, so that your your face will shine, so that blessing will come again on your people. Let's look again at Isaiah, well not look again, let's look at Isaiah chapter 57, just do a few more scriptures and we'll move into a bit more teaching from them. Isaiah 57. Verse 15. 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
For I'll not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. And so here in this situation, again, we see a group of people that desperately need a work of restoration. They're not what they should be. And God is saying, I'm high and lifted up, but I will come and I will dwell and I will revive those that humble themselves before me. If we go to Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, we're in a situation where Hosea is prophesying to an adulterous nation that desperately need renewing, reviving and restoring spiritually. And in Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, we look at the blessings of revival. What happens when a revival comes? Hosea 6 verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth. You can see again here a picture of people that have fallen on hard spiritual times. It's their own fault. And uh, in some senses, God has allowed them to to fall on hard times. It's part of his judgment. It's part of a part of his allowing them to, to go into this state is so that they recognize their need of him. I'll come to this later, but one of the, the most important parts of understanding revival is that the understanding of the need for revival or the pursuit of revival is really to come to an understanding that we need God. Revival is all about what human beings can't do and what only God can. Um, I will say this again and again throughout this month, but the pursuit of revival is an end in itself. The pursuit of revival is an end in itself. What do I mean? Well, I mean this, that to seek God for his spirit and to seek God to bring revival in your own personal life and also to the church at large, as you Pursue God as you seek God for revival, even if full revival doesn't come in your time, the pursuit of revival will do an incredible work in your life. So seeking God to pour out his spirit, seeking God for restoration, seeking God to come down from heaven and bring visitation to come like spring rains, seeking and calling on God and showing him that we need him, that in itself is one of the most healthy places to be. And I want to also show you, hopefully, that people that don't give a stuff about revival, that they don't care about it, that aren't interested in it, those people spiritually plateau very easily. And also there is a danger for people that have no room in their lives for the pursuit of revival, both personal or corporate, there is a danger that they will actually get colder and colder and that actually they also won't plan for much 
or believe God for much because they're not expecting much different than they've already got. So there is a few words in the Old Testament talking a little bit about revival. So someone says, well, where's revival in the Bible? Well, we've looked at the word there, and I've just chosen a few. We'll go in, in depth as we go throughout this month. I've just chosen a few scriptures. There's plenty of others. A few words there to speak about the fact that it's like dry bones being revived, that it's a work of restoration. There's a work of healing going on, a work of wholeness going on, that the seeming absence of God changes and there comes a nearness and a more tangible experience of God's presence. He's not high and far away. He's not stepped back, allowing the church or the people of God to get on with their own, but own devices, but he is actively engaged in encountering his people, healing them, binding them up, raising them up, and bringing showers of blessing into their lives. So when we talk about revival, from everything I've said so far, we're talking about a revival is what God does with his people. So revival is an experience that comes to believers. It's, it's an experience in the life of the church when the Holy Spirit comes and does an unusual work in his people. When we speak about revival from, from this type of perspective, we're not talking about, about at, uh, firstly, a whole bunch of non-Christians getting saved. You know, if suddenly we got loads and loads of non-Christians getting saved and multitudes getting saved here at Kensington Temple, you might say, that's revival. No, it isn't. But I tell you what, for that to take place, revival must have already taken place amongst God's people. Because we will see that when God revives his people, one of the consequences of a revived people is multitudes get saved. The souls and souls get saved. The, the amount of souls getting saved becomes extraordinary. So that's why there's a little bit of confusion. So when we talk about the revivals of the past, and say you read some of them in my book, a few of those chapters, and you think about the Methodist revival, immediately you might think of all the hundreds of thousands of people that came to Christ, and you would be right. But that was a consequence of the Methodist revival. Do you hear what I'm saying? I don't mean to split hairs here, but it was only because there was a group of people led by such people as Whitfield and Wycliffe, sorry, not Whit, Whit, uh, Wesley and Whitfield and others, that these people, these leaders and these people, they got revived. And as they were revived, they revived others. They spread a message of revival amongst themselves and of course, a revived church will always be evangelistically and missionary minded. You can think of the Moravian missionaries that were sent all over the world. Um, and, uh, and how revival amongst God's people will spill out into the earth. I don't want to go ahead of myself, but the greatest model of what revival is, not that every revival is the same, but the greatest model in the Bible is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the chapter of revival. That doesn't mean that everything has to happen exactly like that, but the principles of Acts chapter 2, that is revival. That was God pouring out his spirit on the day of Pentecost and reviving his 
people and out of reviving his people, others got saved. A revival community was pioneered. We might look at that a bit later. And then by the end of Acts chapter 2, you have a picture of what a revival community looks like. And it gives you a sample of them praying together, continuing the apostolic doctrine and teaching, meeting house to house and in the temple. And the Lord was adding to their number daily that was going to be saved. That is a picture of a revived church and how it affects um, society around it. And, And while that revival was going on, it didn't go on forever. But while that revival was going on, tremendous things were taking place in Jerusalem. And, and people were full of fear and even frightened to join this revival church because it was so powerful. So that's the, the New Testament picture of that. So revival, you can't revive something that's never had life. You have to be born again before you're revived. But also we can look at a church or a stream of churches. We can talk about, say, the church in Britain and say the church in Britain needs revival. We can talk about other areas of the world where we can say that the church is in revival. Very much in China, for a number of years, the church has been in revival. Under severe pressure, that is true, and severe persecution. Often revival takes place in the severest of persecutions. And yet that revival that's going on in China is is not just a revived church, it's spilling out. It's a little bit like Pentecost. Hundreds and thousands and millions of people over the last few years are getting saved and continue to be saved in China and saved into a revived church. So revival is an enlivening, a quickening, an awakening of lethargic and sleepy Christians. You know, it's interesting how often in church history, when you look at revivals, What takes place is you see one revival flow and then ebb and then later on, a few decades or centuries, another revival come. One of the things that is interesting to note is that at the time when a revival hits, it's amazing how few Christians are even aware that they need a revival. In fact, revivals, not always. Sometimes a revival can be a repeat revival. It can keep coming back. There was a Methodist revival, and uh, that took place in the 1700s. And then it began to dip near the end of the 1700s, the Methodist revival. Wesley, before he died, was was complaining about the lack of revived Methodists. Why? Because so many people had got saved, they'd planted so many churches that people had began to rest on their laurels. They had enough to keep them going without pursuing God or pursuing souls. And so they'd got to that place where they had what they thought was an abundance and they ceased that hunger for God and his reviving work. So before Wesley died, after that great revival, he was complaining that Methodists were becoming unrevived, that they were no longer seeking God. After all, look at the great work that they had. And so what happened in the early 1800s was the next, and both of these revivals are in my book, was was a primitive revival where a bunch of Methodists said, we're sick of this, we've got cold, lethargic, we're just doing church. We liked, we liked the stories about the beginning, when Wesley was out there in the field, preaching in the fields and going for the converts. That's what we like, and, so, and that's what we're going to do. 
So they stepped away from the regular Methodist church that was really just a denomination and turned into a very big denomination. And they went out and they started preaching in the fields, holding real camp meetings and camps with different preachers. And there was a powerful primitive Methodist revival, especially in the north of England, where you can still go through mining villages and see not just Methodist chapels, but chapels. And on the front, it says primitive Methodists. But what can happen in revivals is that, is that at, the, at, at the beginning of a revival or a start of a revival, a group of people or a number of pe- people begin to get desperate. We saw some of those passages in the Old Testament and the people that wrote those passages knew that something had to happen. They were aware of their condition. And that's what revival does. It wakes people up to their true spiritual condition. We know that in the book of Revelations, one of the messages to the church, one of the messages was uh, that a message of revival. The message is, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? And one of the churches was told to take spiritual salve, spiritual salve, and to put it on their eyes because they thought that they were rich, They had everything that God could give them, that they were triumphant, that they had everything. And so in their eyes, in the book of Revelation, this church thought that it was in revival. You know, there is a lot of churches in the Western world today that think that they are in revival or think that they are revived or think that they are on the cutting edge of God's spirit. And if God was to reveal to them their true condition, they took some of that eye salve of the Holy Spirit and looked at themselves, they would see that they were poor, uh, that they were naked, and that they were lacking much. One of the first signs of revival, not just corporately in a church or a nation, but also in your own life, one of the first signs of a reviving work in your life is when you realize how poor spiritually you really are. So when you you get to that place where you realize how much you aren't what you should be, don't let the devil come in with condemnation. But if you're mature enough, it is the Holy Spirit showing you your true condition. One of the greatest dangers of the Western, Western Christians today is they think they're all right. And they think that God thinks that they're all right. And they judge their Christian lives by the person that's next to them that's just like them. And so what can happen is that Christians can become thermometers. And so someone says, are you on fire for God? And they say, I don't know, let me just check. Let me feel my friend next to me. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm about the same temperature as they are, so that I must be okay. And so if everybody's at the same temperature... Nobody realizes what real heat could be. So this is what um, this is what Revelation speaks about a lukewarm church. Uh, What's a lukewarm church? Everybody's lukewarm. But you know, we don't know what boiling water is like, so we have no idea. So, you know, we're not freezing cold. We haven't frozen yet. I'm lukewarm, you're lukewarm. Oh, we must be on fire for God. And so this idea of a thermometer mentality where we just measure ourselves amongst those that are our, 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 our immediate neighbours 
or where churches and gatherings and communities of God themselves just measure themselves to the church down the road. Well, we're more on fire than the church down the road. But it's all relative, isn't it? Because if you're at a temperature of 7 degrees centigrade and you think you're at boiling point because everybody around you is at 3 degrees temperature, that's a thermometer. But what happens is God wants us to be thermostats. Thermostats. And when you look at a thermostat, you actually look and you say, where do I want to be? You say to yourself, I'm 7 degrees centigrade here. I need to be 25, you know what I'm saying? And then you turn it up. And so in the beginning of Colin's book, A People with a Passion, which is about the wineskins of revival, I mean, the people of the passion, I'll, I'll speak more about this, I'm throwing some of the things out I'm going to revisit during the... Colin's book, A People of a Passion, and the cell vision here at Kensington Temple, it's not just an idea to do church. It's actually, we're actually believing God that it could be a wineskin for revival. Not just to minister to the few that are in this church, but perhaps people with a passion are cell groups, that it could be a wineskin for millions of people to be involved with. So even in planning how we do church, whether you've got a revival mindset can determine what you produce, what you believe God for, and what you plan for. If you're going to build an altar for the fire to come, how much fire do you think is going to come? It's going to, to, go, it's going to determine how big you build that altar. And so when we talk about revival, one of the major works of the Holy Spirit is to awaken people to what they're not, but they think they are. They think they're lukewarm. And sometimes people can read the revival stories and think that, oh yeah, that's me. No, it's not you. You think it's you. This is the point. What revival and the Holy Spirit does is sober us up and cause us to desire change. You cannot desire revival unless you also desire change. You can't speak about personal revival if you don't want a huge change in your life. If you say, well, I'm doing all right, I could do a bit better. Hey, you know, we're all doing our best. We can all get a bit better. We can all be a bit holier. We can all get a little bit closer to the Lord. We can all do a little bit. We can all do, well, then nothing's going to really change in your life. Because if you, if you just want little change, that's all you're going to get. If, 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 if all your appetite is for spiritual change is a little you won't get more than that. You might not even get that, actually. It's like they say, isn't it? If you set your goals at the ceiling, you may reach the ceiling, but you won't go beyond it. If you set your goal for the clouds, you may reach the clouds, but you won't go along. You set it for the moon, you may reach the... But usually what often happens is the goal that you set, you never achieve. You get close to it, you never achieve, especially spiritually. And so if we're happy where we are, if we're happy with how we're doing, then uh, we're not ready for revival. If we think we're doing okay because we are thermometer Christians, uh, maybe we need to take some of the thermometers and take them over to China or take them over to the Middle East or take them over to some... And actually, that's what we do sometimes. We always say one of the great benefits of going on a short-term mission with Kensington Temple, and over the years we've gone all the way around the world is that we've been places where we've taken people on mission. And whilst they're on mission, they've got revived. 
because we've taken them out of their regular environment. Maybe they turn up on Sunday and, and everything. They just have, and then we stick them in a place where we say, right, we're going into the next village that's never heard the name Jesus, and we're going to ask the elder for permission to speak, and then we're going to lay hands on the sick, and they're going to recover. And it's like being the 12 or the 70 in the New Testament, as you go in, you've got nothing but God, and then all of a sudden God turns up, and their temperature gauge just rockets. Because if you, if, for many people, if they don't experience something of greater heat than they're used to, they don't want it. But this is why revival can also be contagious. Because when personal revival takes place in a few and God breathes on them, then the fire that's upon them can leap and touch other people. Christianity is a bit like being coals in the fire. And those coals transmit transmit heat to one another. You take a coal out and put it on the hearth, that will go cold very quickly. So an awakening to the realities, a heart change. And when revival comes, the result is a change in heart towards God. Prayer changes. I don't just mean that more people pray or they have more prayer meetings. I mean the type of praying changes because the people realize how much they need God. Evangelism flows from this. Multiplication takes place. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus walked in revival for three years. It was a revival. I mean, it was an incredible revival. It started with 12 men, and soon thousands and thousands of people were being affected by the revival. It began with John the Baptist. He, he, he prepared the way, didn't he? For what? For the revival. John the Baptist was a revivalist. What he was, he, I mean, what was his message? His message was, turn back to the Lord, wasn't it? His message was, come back to the Lord, change your heart. And they all went out to see him. They were so affected by the message that they went out to the wilderness to rub shoulders with him, to be baptised for repentance. And he said, hey, this is nothing. I'm just preparing the way for the one that's coming and he will baptise you of the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Jesus, with the overflow of God and the revival anointing, people couldn't get into houses. Crowds were following. He had to try and get over the water. He had to preach sometimes from boats. Such, such was the huge amount on the shores. And that was revival. But you know, even, that, even in that revival, many people would say, that's it. That's it. But you see, revival without corresponding discipleship can fade very quickly. One of the revivals I mention in, in, in the book, and the reason it's good to look at history of revivals is because you see it in action in people's lives. Not that God does, does it the same every time, but you say, how did it affect those people? What was, and what were the effects after it? What can we learn? But what, one of the uh, most wasted revivals, if I can put it that way, was the Welsh revival about a hundred, just over, just under, just over a hundred years ago. And uh, during this, Evan Roberts, there was a great move of the Holy Spirit. There was a revived people and, and people, and the Holy Spirit moved through these revived people. Many people began to get saved, but there was no discipleship. There was no ongoing teaching, not really. And all those people that got saved, all those people that gave their lives, 
You look 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, barely any sign of them in the churches. So we know that when God pours out his wine, it can be a great experience. But if you don't have any wineskins, what's going to happen to that new wine? It's going to be lost. So while Jesus was ministering in this powerful revival anointing and teaching his disciples to do the same, going out, healing the sick, preaching the gospel. They were a revived community. At the same time he was experiencing this revival, what else was he doing? He was meeting with 12 men. He was sitting with them. He was teaching them. He was instructing them. He was molding them personally. He was rebuking them, encouraging them. He, he was, he, his major ministry was not to the multitudes. His major ministry was to 12 men. And so we have to understand that there needs to be a, a balance here. Sometimes I wonder, and I'll speak about this in other times this month, sometimes I wonder that God doesn't withhold his revival power sometimes out of mercy. Because if he poured it out on a church not ready for it, just as much as all heaven would be loosed, so would all hell be loosed. I've always said that three things take place when revival comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out in an extraordinary way. Three things take place. God's power changes people's lives. But fleshly people manifest their flesh like never before. And the devil manifests like never before. And that's what we see, don't we, in Jesus' revival ministry. As he was moving in revival, what was happening? People's lives were being radically changed. I mean, the Zacchaeuses and the prostitutes, lives were being turned around forever. But we also see the manifestation of the enemy. Demons manifesting like they never did in the Old Testament. We know who you are. Demons, he just needed to walk past demonically influenced individuals and the demons would manifest. Jesus, Jesus didn't have a deliverance ministry so much as a shut up ministry. Everywhere he was going in the crowds, demons were crying out. He's saying, shut up, come out, shut up, come out, shut up, come out. He, was like, he just had to shut them down because of the power of revival. And finally, the fleshly. Nobody was persecuted like Jesus. Remember the Pharisees and the hatred and the anger? Remember even the fleshliness that was in his 12 disciples? Who is the greatest? These things come. So in order for us, for a revived church, we, we really need to ask God to do a great work in our, in our hearts. We need to say, Lord, prepare us for this outpouring so that we can cope with it. I mean, when you see churches of 60 splitting through power plays, little churches of 60, what's that? It's hardly a cell group, is it? And you see a pastor walking around with a church of 60 like he's Pope or something. Mate, you're a cell group leader. And there's nothing wrong with being a cell group leader, but why are you walking around thinking you're in some international star? And then that group of 60 split over a power, of 60 people. You can have them, I'd say, have them, take them. 60 people. What if God visited those 60 people and tens of thousands of people got saved? Do you think that would be healthy? Or would that church of 60 that split... Do you think they, could, they can't even handle the little that they've got? Can you imagine if God came in saving power? It would be an absolute disaster, wouldn't it, in the end? This is an important point that I'm making. Because often people are shouting about they want revival and they want the revival, but they're not preparing themselves for revival. There are dangers 
when we study revival and look at revival, there are two extreme dangers. Firstly, there are those that are always talking about revival and interested, but only interested in the exceptional or the unusual. Remember, the Holy Spirit is at work right now, right now in the church. The Holy Spirit is at work in believers' lives, even where there isn't what we might term revival power. The Holy Spirit is involved in churches and believers and ministries right across the world, not just in China, where we might say there is a revival. The Holy Spirit's at work in your life. The Holy Spirit's at work in my life. We might not say that we are in personal revival, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not at work in our lives. Of course he is. This is what we call the, um, the normal work of the Holy Spirit that, it, that, is, that is continuing in our lives. It's his normal work in the church. That never ceases. That never ceases. And so some people, they're not interested in the normal work of the church. They'd come to KT, for example, and they might be with us, and, they might, and we might say, well, welcome to Kensington Temple. Well, perhaps you'd like to uh, join the cell group or, or be involved in one of our ministries. And they'd be like, oh, I don't want to do that for. I want revival. And yet, when the latest sliced bread ministry flies in from some mega church for a massive conference, stick revival in the name, they'll be there. And they'll go up and down the country, fly over to the world for a touch of revival, you know. If God is pouring up, they'll be there. They'll, they'll, they'll sell all their possessions to get to the revival, but they won't serve in the local church. Why? It's not exciting enough. It's not special enough. It's not exceptional enough. It's not unusual enough. So sometimes you meet these people where they're, they're always talking about the unusual, and, and they're, they're very often quite critical of the local church where God's normal work of the Holy Spirit is taking place. So they come to, there's not revival here. We need revival. And it's like, well, what have you, you know, how have you served God in your life? And so these people, they can cling to so-called revival ministries, which aren't always revival ministries. They claim to be revival ministries. They may have peculiar manifestations or, 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 or these special claims, and people flock to them. But how many of those people are your regular members of the church that you could count on for weeks, months, and sometimes years, faithfully serving, you see? So the danger is those, that, 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 that they won't get involved in the ordinary, regular work of the Holy Spirit. They disdain that. They want something special, exciting, and they don't realize that that's God at work too. That's a danger, because those type of people, when revival really comes, they won't be able to carry it. Why? Because they're not faithful. They're not faithful. They'll be the ones, they'll be like, you know, the ones that receive the word with joy, but there's no root in them. So we have to be careful of people that are chasing after the next revival all the time, but they're not rooted themselves. They're not in revival. They're just talking a good talk. And there's plenty of those around in the Western world today, talking a good talk. But, but then we have to be careful of the other extreme. The other extreme. These are people that emphasize the regular work of the church and the regular work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in all believers and all churches. And, uh, and, they're, and they're, they're regular work. They, they love the local church. They're involved in the local church. And they like to see people saved and, and everything like that. But they've got no 
as aspiration for the breakthrough of God in their lives. They've got no real desire or sense of need for more, I mean radically more, or for something tremendous to take place, like the book of, like, like the book of Acts chapter 2. That sort of experience of Acts chapter 2 is not even on their, their radar. They would take this sort of stuff and say, well, we don't need this. We're just following the Lord. We're faithful. We're doing what we can. We're winning who we can. This, you know, th- th- this, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't real. This was in another time. And so the danger here is that these types of people, they're affected by the extremes on the other side. And they hear these people breezing in saying, your church needs, to, needs revival and your church needs this and your church needs the other. And then they see them flit off three weeks later to another church and they think, oh, all this talk is, is rubbish. Or, people, or they notice false claims where people say, oh, there's revival here and, and this is the greatest thing from sliced bread and have you been here and have you been there? And they're like, no, but I've been serving in my church and doing what God's called me to do and being faithful to the ministry. I don't. And then they can go to the other extreme. Because there's a danger, because if there isn't something inside you that pursues revival, that's a bad place to be. That, 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 that will cause you to hit your spiritual ceiling very quickly. You will very soon be at ease with the level of spirituality that you're at. And you won't be looking for much more. You won't be looking for a breakthrough. You won't be looking for dramatic change. You won't be looking, you won't be thinking about the millions in London that aren't saved. You'll be saying, well, we do what we do. There'll be no sense of can God break through? Can God breathe into these millions of dry bones, millions and millions of dry bones in Europe? Well, they're not even born again, are they? I'm mixing my metaphors, but you know what I'm saying? Dead Europe. Can Europe be revived again? Some people don't even, it's not even on their agenda. They're not even thought, they're not even planning for that. Or church leaders that don't have this desire, this place to seek God for revival, they will always plan for just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. They, they, will, they will never, never make room for the possibilities of God to do something dramatic or to do something wonderful. That there will always be, well, we'll just continue going as we are going and it would be nice to have a few more and of course, oh, but they'll never seek God for the, for the supernatural inbreaking. Uh, they will never f- move or plan for great things. And one of the things that we try to do under our senior minister here is try and keep our eyes on God's possibilities. I'll teach you that you can't, you can't make revival happen but you can seek God for it. And like I said, seeking God for a revival in your hearts and those around you, and for an, seeking God is an end in itself. When people seek God in the Old and New Testament, the most important thing that takes place in their life is not finding God, it's the process of change in their lives as they seek God. As they seek God, as they press in for God, as they cry out for God, as they learn their need for God, as they plead for God to come, not just for themselves, but for others, and realize that we are bankrupt without God, that, that we, are, we, are, we, we are famished without God, starving without God, bankrupt, broken, 
useless without God. That's the last thing the Western church thinks of itself, and that's why we are one of the worst Christian areas of the world today. We are. we, We are in a terrible Christian environment in the West. We are in an unrevived... And, and the reason is, is because we think we're so good. We think we're so clever. We think we're all right. And that is a devastating, terrible situation to be in spiritually. But once we start seeking God and asking God uh, uh, for personal, then we begin to get healthy. You're never, never as healthy as you are when you're seeking God for change. Never as healthy. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That when you're broken before God you're actually moving towards wholeness. But when you think you're whole, you're actually moving away from God, seeking God. So in our plans at KT, you know, we've always said, Lord, you know, we can build the altar, but only you can send the fire. We can call out for the fire. We can't twist your arm. We can't make it happen. Sometimes there is a little confusion over revival because of the ways that people use the word revival. So, Revival can, can, is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We should seek God for revival because it's an end in itself. God calls us to seek him. But in the end, only God can send his spirit when he wants, how he wants. It's sovereign. Yet sometimes people talk about revival meetings. We're going to hold a revival. Now, in one sense, you can't say that. But in another sense, you can. It depends what you mean by revival. Americans use revival in a very different way way than um, historically we have in this country. So Americans will use the word revival as an intention to meet and encounter God. Or sometimes Americans will talk about a revival meeting and what they actually mean is an evangelistic outreach. We just have to recognize what way ways people are using the terms. So we, we, on Sunday evenings, we used to call them revival meetings. Think on Wednesday evening, we call them our revival prayer meetings. I mean, are they revival prayer meetings? No. No, because if they were, they would be filled to the rafter. But what's the intention? The intention is to seek God for revival. Do you hear what I'm saying? Also, we try and make room for this element in our ministry here at Kensington Temple. And so even in our regular services, we always want to make room for a heart work of God. Traditionally, if that's the right word, and we have Sunday evenings and Sunday evenings, at the moment, we call the Sunday evening services the Holy Spirit fire service. Not that we're claiming anything. We could call it the Holy Spirit revival service, but we wouldn't be claiming anything. What we're saying is we're pursuing something. So the Holy Spirit fire service tonight at 7 o'clock, what is that? It is the pursuit of revival. Not claiming to have it, but it's the pursuit. The pursuit of personal revival in our hearts. God, do something in me. But also, out of that, the desire and and the faith for God to do something in our dying nation. So in seven o'clock services, we give more time for worship than we do, say, at the five. More time for the Holy Spirit to work because we want, especially in that service, for God to do a work of renewal and restoration and revival in our hearts so that we can be better equipped as believers, so that we can come into more of a a, a growth in what we might call, well, what Colin, Colin calls hearts on fire, walking in personal revival. 
But we believe, believing for bigger things than that. We're believing for God. So when I seek God for a message on Sunday evenings, it's very different to what I do here at a five o'clock. This is a teaching, strengthening uh, service. At seven o'clock, it's about your heart. It's about where your heart is right now. It's about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your heart. It's like, it's like heart surgery, heart restoration, heart work from God. That's what it's about. Now, in a church that didn't have any understanding or appetite for the reviving work of God, you wouldn't even have a seven o'clock service. You, would, you wouldn't even have an element in a lot of Collins morning preaching where he always brings an element of heart work, of reviving work, of, uh, as well as the pastoral and teaching and the prophetic. You wouldn't have, and many churches in, in, in Britain today, they don't even have an evening service. Evening services are on the decline in Great Britain today. And they were, uh, and especially in Pentecostal, we're talking about 100 years of Elam, in Pentecostal charismatic services, the morning services, often family, general, congregational, but the evening was always evangelism, and the evening was always signs and wonders and healings. There was always more time. It was to give, to give that time. Not that that's the only time God moves. We, have, we want it to happen in the cell groups and everything, but I'm just trying to give you a, a feel, a sort of backdrop to this subject of revival. What we're going to be doing in the next few weeks is going a little bit deeper into some of the things that I've mentioned, both God sending revival to his church, how that takes place, but also how God can do a reviving work on the inside of us. God bless you. If, you are, if you're interested, these books are there in the foyer, three pounds each. Thank you.